0: Welcome to the 2019 Wealth Standard Podcast, Season One Capitalism. And now, your host, Patrick Donahoe.
1: Hi, everyone. This is Patrick Donahoe. Welcome to the Wealth Standard Podcast. You're going to love my guest today, one of the most brilliant minds that's out there in relation to freedom and liberty. He is the president of the Foundation for Economic Education. He also is the author of best selling books. Those include, Excuse me, Professor, Challenging the Myths of Progressivism also has authored a number of pamphlets, including The Great Myths of the Great Depression and his most recent book, Real Heroes. My guest is Lawrence Reed. Larry, it's great to have you on. Thank you uh, so much for taking the time.
0: My pleasure, Patrick. Thank you for having me. I appreciate
1: it. So Larry, your incredible wealth of knowledge, and this could go for hours and hours. I just want to dive just straight into the description, how you would describe to somebody your philosophical views of life and business, which I guess is part of life too.
0: <laughs> well, I've always been a little bit hesitant to assign a label because I think labels often are a uh, shorthand for things that may or may not be true. People jump to conclusions. I always try to stress to people that you should judge another person's views by the value of their content, not by some label you or others may ascribe to them. But if I had to put a label to my philosophy, I would be comfortable with classical liberal. That means liberal in the 19th century sense, or in the sense that Europeans use the term even today. I would also be comfortable with the term libertarian. But the bottom line is that I believe that each individual comes into this world with the right to do anything that's peaceful. And by peaceful, I mean, as long as you do no harm, to another, as long as you respect the life and the property and the contracts and the choices, the decisions of your fellow man, uh, you commit no fraud or force or violence or deception, then the burden should be on those who think in some way you should be restricted because I think you then, as a peaceful person, have a right to live your life as you see fit.
1: Now, of course, we're going to get into what the commonly held description is of how life should be for the collective good. But before that, i really intrigued to know what helped bring you to this perspective you have that you just eloquently defined.
0: Well, for me, I can't say it was my parents, because in my mother's case, she really never had any political or economic or current events uh, viewpoints. She was a very nice lady, but just uh, had no inkling about these things. And I respect her for that my father had some good instincts. He was a small business owner. And so he kind of bristled at the thought that some distant government might tell him how to run his business. And he was in some ways hostile to authoritarianism and very respectful of the individual. So he planted some good instincts in me. But I think the most jarring early episode in my life that proved to be pivotal in the development of my thinking was the Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia in 1968. I mean, I was only, what, 14 at that time, but I had begun to be interested in current affairs, and I was watching these people in Czechoslovakia increasingly move toward freedom. A new regime had come into power in the early part of 1968, and uh, they were moving away from hardline communism, even talking about free elections, and I was cheering them on because I instinctively thought, this is great. They should be allowed to do these things. And then when the Soviets invaded, I remember watching that on television. I was just outraged that for no reason other than to bring people under control, to push them around, to live their lives for them, and to use force to get it done, you had these foreign powers invading the country. And it really moved me. And within days, I went to Pittsburgh on a bus from my home, which was at that time about 30 miles away to participate in a demonstration against the Soviet invasion. It was put on by a youth group that I joined, and one of the first things they did with new members was they put them on the mailing list to receive materials from the foundation that I now run. My reading then deepened dramatically, so I got into this from an anti-communist angle, but my philosophy has blossomed into full-blown appreciation for human liberty across the board.
1: So before we get to that, as you look back on that pivotal experience, how would you define or describe that instinct that was compelling enough that you felt for people that didn't speak English, that lived across the world and who were pursuing freedom and were essentially invaded and under the guise of being able to control and make their life better? What was that instinct? How would you describe that?
0: probably an anti-authoritarianism that I inherited from my father. I remember in third grade, so I would have been eight, he wanted to take me to Florida for a week to visit relatives in February, and I was a student in the local public schools there in western Pennsylvania, and I mentioned to my teacher that we were going to Florida, and she said, he can't do that, he can't take you to Florida, and I'm going to talk to the principal. and I'm <laughs> And I went home thinking, oh my gosh, we're not going to be able to go. And I told my dad that and he said, I'll take care of it. And sure enough, when the principal called, I heard my dad's side of the conversation. He was generally a quiet, kind of shy guy, but he put his foot down on many occasions. And I recall vividly him saying at one point to the principal on the phone, he's my son, we're going to Florida, don't call here again. And he hung up on him and he was my hero. So Skepticism of authority, especially authority that had little more going for it other than just guns, has always been with me from the earliest of ages. But then I saw those scenes in Prague in 1968, and I know it touched me to see people who were not much older than me, students in 1968, being hosed down by water cannon and being arrested and rolled over with tanks. That just deeply touched me.
1: And I look at the degrees there, because I would say most people would say that type of behavior and how individual liberties were being violated by the hose spraying. And I mean, I think most people would agree to that, but most people would not agree to the the notion of you going to Florida during the winter as <laughs> essentially the same idea. So where's the disconnect there? Obviously, there's degrees, but how do you typically address that?
0: That's a great question, Patrick, because that's rather ordinary and automatic for people to think that the two are not in any way connected. But the more I came to understand and appreciate liberty, the more I realized that it's a very precious and unique thing. Not many people in the history of the world have enjoyed it. And most who have had it have sooner or later lost it, and not by one fell swoop, by some dramatic radical invasion by another country, but most have lost it by a steady and slow, Drip, 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 erosion, where they say, well, in this area of life, we can trust the government to run our affairs. And later it's, well, now we have to have it do this for us. And it's the old slippery slope that once you begin to abandon things like self-reliance, personal responsibility and character, taking charge of your life and trusting to politicians to do those things for you, the big question that every socialist needs to answer but never does is where are you going to draw the line? How are you going to stop that? What about the next group that comes along and says, hey, I want something too, or I need government to give me this or that. So I became much more appreciative of the slippery slope that societies have engaged in that have taken them from free societies to tyranny, often slowly enough that it didn't realize it until it was too late.
1: So maybe talk, if you would, about when something like that is done, where a person is impeded from doing something that they want. And I would say give something to somebody because they're less fortunate than the other. What does that do to a person?
0: Yeah, you know, I think it means so much more to all concerned when people do good things like giving to those in need from the heart and by choice, entirely voluntarily. so much more good is accomplished by that method than by beating it out of them or sending in the tanks if they don't do it or taxing the life out of them. For the same reason that take a person to church on a Sunday morning at gunpoint and pat yourself on the back. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And pat yourself on the back later and say, uh, I made him religious. You probably had just the opposite effect. One of the most important observations about humans, I think, is that each of us is extraordinarily, completely unique. No two people who have ever lived have been precisely the same. Mm-hmm. And to me, that screams freedom because. You can't be who you are. You can't be fully human unless you have broad sway, so long as you don't harm another, if you don't have broad sway over how your life goes. Because if somebody else is telling you all those things, you're not really living your life. Somebody else is living their life through you at the point of the gun. And I think that's so anti-human nature. It's just unthinkable.
1: Well, one thing I've come to realize is there seems to be at least, I'm not going to speak absolutely, but there seems to be this. Natural curiosity that we have as human beings, and I think children have it at incredible levels, and the stifling that takes place sometimes when that curiosity is interrupted and and I would say the interruption can be to the degree of being invaded by Russia right as far as pursuing things that you want to pursue, but I would also say from a school perspective where curriculum is dictated and, and essentially not, I wouldn't say forced, but highly coerced <laughs> as far as what you should be studying, what you should be reading, what's right, what's wrong from an academic perspective. That's how I see it. So how does that relate to the importance of understanding freedom when it comes to taking the uniqueness of who we are and having the greatest experience that we can in life by pursuing curiosity and pursuing our desires?
0: Yeah, I think you're exactly right. You're on to a very important point that everyone develops in his or her own way at their own speed and interruptions in that through the use of force or dictation by uh, someone outside, especially if they're remotely, only remotely connected to you, tends to uh, send people down the wrong path. It tends to discourage their lust for knowledge. The very most effective teachers Are the ones who don't just open up a kid's skull and pour in the facts and figures, but the most effective teachers are the ones who strike a match in the mind and the heart of a student to ignite that lust for learning, to get the kids to appreciate the importance of learning and make them want to do it on their own by inspiring them. And that's the most effective way to teach, not to treat a kid as if he's a robot that just needs to be programmed at every turn. That runs counter to all that we know about human nature.
1: We could go a completely different direction of the podcast talking about academia and and grades and what determines if you're smarter students (laughs) or (laughs) anyway, well, I won't go there, but I I do want to pivot to what we've chosen as a theme for the podcast for the next several months, which is capitalism. Because I think all of these talking points that we've been discussing so far relates to that in a very peculiar way, because capitalism, I would say is, to me at least, is a structure that can bring out incredible things from human beings. So maybe as it relates to your role with fee and the discovery that you made of the principles of liberty, and I would say with your specialty in public policy, how do you view or have come to understand what capitalism is and what its principles are?
0: Okay. Capitalism is the economic component of a free society. And that's pretty important. Nobody should say that economics is everything, but economics is the means by which we solve an awful lot of problems. It's the means by which we feed and clothe and house people and means by which people's lives materially can improve and put them in a position where they can do wonderful things, including helping those less fortunate. I see capitalism as one of its greatest virtues of many is that it's the one system that doesn't require a mastermind a central planner, some guy in an ivory tower somewhere who says, hey, if I just have enough cops that I can send out to tell people what to do, I can plan society. Capitalism is what happens when you leave people alone. You don't have to tell them to do things like trade or invent, create, employ, build. They do that as long as the incentives are there and they're free to be themselves. We are naturally a creative being as human beings. That's one of the greatest shortcomings of every other system. All the others, non-capitalist systems, are contrivances. They're Rube Goldberg contraptions. They're individual humans pretending to be what they can't possibly be and constructing stuff and then imposing it on other people. That is fraught with failure from the word go. And
1: how would you associate that with the the previous topics that we were mentioning, just in the general notion of liberty and specifically to your experience in school and how school dictates? and how curiosity is really, I would say, some of the fire that can be ignited to create some of the am- most amazing learning. How do you associate that with capitalism?
0: Well, capitalism, by its very nature, sparks and nurtures and inflames, you might say, in a positive way, that hu- natural human curiosity. Because capitalism basically says, hey, if you have an idea and you want to try to put it in place because you think it will meet a need, it will, somebody will like what you do and give you money for it, and therefore you can do better in the process. Well, you're free to do that, go to town. But it also says you can't just do these things without regard to the desires of other people or you'll flop. So capitalism says you can't put a robe around you and a crown on your head and tell the peasants to cough it up. You have to produce things that they want and need. And if you're good at it, you'll be rewarded for it. I don't know why anybody wouldn't want a system that is aimed at rewarding people who actually meet the needs and desires and wants of other people.
1: I would say the statement you just made, a lot of people would say that they don't deserve it, that they have more than they need, and therefore they should share that with others. What's wrong with that argument if it's for the better good of other people?
0: <laughs> uh, you're talking about like the new Congress Well, You're saying of- if you, yeah. yeah,
1: if somebody figures out a way to create value and be successful based on the value they create for somebody else, Because they're so successful, they have too much and others don't have enough. Therefore, they don't need all that. Therefore, they should share with others.
0: Well, again, the wealthiest among us who got that way, not because of any special favors from government, I'm very much opposed to that when it happens, but because of their efforts, their ingenuity, their investments, being at the right place at the right time and meeting the needs of a lot of people, by definition, they got there through a life of service. They've created value. And in every case, you'll find that the so called super rich who have accomplished great things like that and have been rewarded for it, what society in effect pays them for having done that is a minuscule fraction of the wealth they've added to society. I don't care that Bill Gates has $70 billion, he created hundreds of trillions of dollars in value that didn't exist before. Mm -mm. The last thing you want to do is to say to such people, If you get to where you're so successful because you've done such a good job at serving others, we're going to treat you like a villain. I mean, my gosh, why would anybody want to do that except out of some really rotten motives like envy and covetousness that never end well? No, it
1: doesn't. But that's a pervasive feeling that exists in society right now.
0: Yeah, I tell people all the time, hey, you know, for your own mental health, count your blessings. Don't count the other guys. You'll feel a lot better about life, and you won't be uh, wasting time trying to run somebody else down.
1: Yeah, I won't go into a story that I was going to talk about. Maybe I'll do that at the end. But what came up when you were speaking just a moment ago was, I think it was a speech you gave a, a while ago about the wealth of, about Adam Smith and the wealth of nations. And it wasn't necessarily on the wealth of nations, which most people define as the title of that, of that book that was highly influential, but you went into the true title of his second book. Would you maybe discuss that and what is that, I don't even know what you call it, the beginning of the title of the book, and what relevance does that have to the actual title that most people subscribe to his book, The Wealth of Nations?
0: That's right. Most people know something about The Wealth of Nations, but most don't know that that wasn't the full title. This was Adam Smith's second of only two books, and the full title was An Inquiry into the Nature and Causes of the Wealth of Nations. And it's significant to think about that because he didn't entitle it an inquiry into the nature and causes of the poverty of nations. And I'm pretty confident if he were here right now and we asked him, why didn't you focus on poverty? That's on everybody's mind these days. He would say, everybody knows what causes poverty. It's what happens when you don't do anything. It's what happens when government stands in your way so that it penalizes people who create wealth and solve poverty. He was more interested in How do we go from a naturally poor society, which we all have been sooner, if you go back far enough, how do you go from being a poor society to a rich one? That's the problem we need to work out and encourage whatever it is that makes that happen. So from
1: going from a poor society to a wealthy society, what does he say is the causes of that?
0: I think Adam Smith would say uh, there are several components here. I'm not sure how he might rate their importance, but these are among, I think, the ones he would list as most important. One is you've got to leave peaceful, productive people alone. You can't stand in their way. You can't vilify them. You can't swipe their capital. Otherwise, they'll say, forget this. You know, why should I endure the risk and the hassle and the headaches if somebody else is just going to take whatever it is I produce? So don't stand in the way of productive people like entrepreneurs. He would also say that self-interest is a powerful factor. I know that gets a bad rap in a lot of places. People say, oh, self-interest, you mean you're doing it for yourself? That sounds antisocial. We all should do whatever we do for altruistic reasons, just to help the other guy. But you look around the world, ask yourself, how much of what actually gets done, how much of what's produced that we benefit from derives from somebody's charitable motive just to help somebody they don't even know? Not very much. That's not denigrating the charitable impulse I give to charities all the time. But I don't underestimate the enormous benefit and power of self-interest that's channeled into constructive, positive, wealth-creating directions by entrepreneurs and others in a free society. Think of everything you're going to eat today. How much of that was produced because you just said, hey, Jose, down there in Venezuela, where's my coffee? No, it's because somebody said, hey, I can make a few bucks if I meet this need and create a new product and get it to the people who need it. I mean, that's a constructive, positive force. It's one of the most powerful things for a higher standard of living, self interest
1: Now, I wasn't planning on talking about this, but his first book, The Theory of Moral Sentiments, I haven't really studied this in a really, really long time. I know that you're more versed here. But would you maybe get into the moralities behind the principles of capitalism? Because as I understood, that book and some of the main premises was that there is this kind of natural driving self-interest for our personal well-being. And that through that, we figure out ways to exchange with others and not just benefit ourselves, but better the whole. So, yeah. can you speak to like maybe the morality side of capitalism and how those human tendencies to to be self interested actually work out in the favor of others.
0: Yeah, that first book of Adam Smith's, The Theory of Moral Sentiments. Some Smith scholars argue, and I think is a foundation for this, that maybe that was the more important of the two books because he laid out some of those moral foundations that later he draws out and shows the economic implications of in The Wealth of Nations. Smith was very curious about, well, what motivates people? And in particular, what motivates them to do something for other people instead of just exclusively and entirely for themselves? So when you look at those such things, you go down the path of realizing that people want to feel fulfilled. If you talk to most entrepreneurs about what motivates them, you'll find, in fact, very few of them will say, well, I just wanted to pile up lots of cash. You know, I just sit around and play with my pile of gold coins all day long. No. That's a byproduct of what they're doing. And what's most fulfilling to most of them is the very idea of solving problems, of interacting peacefully and productively with others and deriving happiness from making them happy, finding common areas of interest, and inventing and creating things that satisfy that lust of their curiosity. Those are far more motivating to people, and Smith recognized this than the old caricature of the rich capitalist who has his eye on one thing, just piling up cash.
1: So that was a couple hundred years ago, late mid-1700s to the late 1700s. Has human nature changed since then, or are those principles obsolete, or do they still apply today?
0: Oh, I think they apply, and I can't see how human nature has changed. Remember, one of the elements, key elements of human nature is that we are creatures of ideas. So our underlying nature may not change, and I don't think it has, but our ideas can change, and ideas have real-world impact. We can delude ourselves into all kinds of fallacies, or we can enlighten ourselves with the truth and with a useful knowledge. And at various times in history, people go down one rabbit trail or the other. So I would say I don't think our nature has fundamentally changed, but our understanding of it, our understanding of the world... Is too often colored by things like the political heat of the moment or the fad of the day, but those things don't ultimately undermine basic human nature.
1: That's awesome. That's an incredible way to explain it. So let's end with maybe this topic, which is the notion of failure, because I think when it comes to a capitalistic society, there's failure that comes as the result of a person pursuing their curiosity, whether it's entrepreneurship or business. And you look at, really, I would say, where the the central powers government has stepped in and thrown their weight around is that failure hurts people. Failure is bad. And in order to protect the collateral damage of failure, the government has to be involved because they're the only ones that are going to look out for the best interests of the whole. So how do you typically think through that type of logic that people use?
0: Well, I don't know how anybody can look at the way government operates today and say, uh, or they... (laughs) Somehow those guys can make up for our shortcomings. What? (laughs) I mean, that's absurd. Some failure in life is inevitable and unavoidable and actually not necessarily bad. It depends more than anything else on how you react to it, what you learn from it. So I don't think we should look to any entity, capitalism, socialism, government, whatever, as the outfit that's going to prevent failure. What we should be asking ourselves is what kind of system tends to minimize it, localize it, and maximize what we learn from it that's what we want well you don't get that under a centrally planned top-down government directed system because they fail all the time and they don't have the internal incentives to right the ship and to adjust because their concerns are elsewhere their concerns are re-election getting a bigger budget not serving you so much as maintaining their own position and power Under <laughs> capitalism When you fail at something because you didn't control your costs or you didn't really meet a need that was out there, somebody else did it better than you, well, there's a mechanism called profit and loss that immediately sends you a pretty powerful signal. It says right off the bat, you need to get off this horse and, and get on another one. And so that minimizes the waste of resources. It redirects human energy. I'm grateful for a system, we call it capitalism, that tends to minimize failure and to maximize service which every entrepreneur is trying to do.
1: Yeah, and I would say failure is one of the most amazing things to attach to as far as opportunity is concerned. Today though, I look at just how failure is a bad thing and a number of employees, and it's been a very difficult thing over the years to unprogram or reprogram them to look at that making mistakes is a good thing. You know, if you handle it the right way, it's one of the most incredible ways to learn and accelerate that learning. And as you've been spoken and the idea of what government has done and how they've failed, I think most people agree with that. But because their mission is for the betterment right, of society, it's somehow accepted. And I find it really curious right now with the government shutdown. I was watching the news last night to see the jazz plants. So I wanted to see that plus the snow report there was a segment on there about gyms were opening up to federal employees that wanted to go work out. There were food banks that were opening up their doors that there was so much charitable drive to help those that were in need because of the government shutdown and they didn't have a paycheck. And I find it interesting how people perceive government still and just how incredibly strong that perspective is. And it made me concerned to an extent, how have you really looked at what's going on right now in the current environment and associated that with some of the stuff we've been talking about
0: well, every time I hear someone say, oh, we have to rely on the government for this to help those people, I always like to say, you're really selling yourself short. What you're saying is that politicians are the ones with the compassion. The rest of us dummies don't have that. We somehow have the wisdom to select the right people because they have more compassion than we do, but we don't really have that kind of compassion. Only <laughs> they do. I mean, I think that is so ridiculous. I do too. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's absurd. It's childish. We should look around and rejoice in all the good things that people are voluntarily doing to help other people. And they're doing it in spite of the fact that the government is swiping a quarter or more of what they earn. It's amazing how much charity there is after the government takes its cut. Exactly. Don't sell yourself short. Hey, listeners. Thanks for
1: tuning in. My book, the Amazon bestseller, Heads I Win, Tails You Lose, a financial strategy to reignite the American dream is completely changing the way people look at saving, wealth, and retirement. Want a sneak peek? Head on over to www.headsortailsiwin.com forward slash podcast for a free audio and text download of my favorite chapter. Again, that's headsortailsiwincom forward slash podcast. All right. This has been amazing. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Oh, this, very much. Yeah. This has been incredible. I've enjoyed everything you've said.
0: Thank you, Patrick. Well, you had great questions. You, you drew it out of me and I sure appreciate that.
1: Well, it's one thing, you know, and I have a similar background where I really didn't have very politically involved parents and they had strong opinions one way or the other about commerce. They were both teachers. And I just had curiosity about how things work and how people behave and You know, I came across a lot of your material, two thousand five, two thousand and six, and it really kind of gave me that same feeling. And I didn't necessarily have the same experience as you did with seeing how a person's liberty was taken at a larger scale with the Czech Republic and Russia. But I started to look at myself, and I started to look at what I was taught and what drives me, what drives other people, and the environment associated with the most healthy grooming of a human being, where they can really pursue what they want and happiness and joy and it's not something that can be dictated or forced. It has to be chosen. I think oftentimes people gravitate toward this easy way of doing things. I'm not sure if that's the purpose of life, but I look at the incredible experience I've had learning from you and learning from others who understand the principles of liberty at such a deep level and how much of an impact it would have on just the average individual, let alone a society, but just the average individual where they recognize in themselves that there's something special and that they can do incredible things with their life and I don't know it's inspiring. your website's incredible. you have so <laughs> much information on there, more than can be consumed in like probably ten lifetimes. I've spread the word in regards to fee and other organizations that are similar and I commend you and applaud you for all the effort you put into to spreading this. I know it's not easy, and I know that these are not widely held beliefs and understood beliefs and The way in which you do it, Larry, is just is so incredible because it feels genuine and eloquent and you do it with such a great demeanor. And so thank you for all all the work you've done and keep it up and we'll continue to charge forward and try to get more people that understand this.
0: Oh, my gosh, you made my day, Patrick. Thanks so much for the very kind words. You seem like a guy who would be great fun to have lunch with. Where's your home? I'm downtown Salt Lake City. Oh, okay. You know, I do a radio show that emanates out of Salt Lake, but I do it from wherever I am. Every Tuesday afternoon at three o'clock, it's the one we had problems with. I was telling you about.
1: What station is it?
0: It's actually a new network called the Loving Liberty Network. You know a lady out there named uh, Kathy Smith from Ogden. Uh, I don't. Okay, her late husband started. A, I bet you know of this store. I'm trying to think, Smith and something. It's a. They have two giant stores, like one hundred and twenty thousand square feet, one in Ogden and one in uh, Far West.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I'm not originally from here. It sounds familiar, but I'm not putting those connections together.
0: Okay. Well, because of her, she's become a good friend and fee supporter. And then now this Loving Liberty Network, it's all an internet-based thing. I have to be out there a couple of times a year, so I'll make a note to let you know.
1: Oh, yeah, we're right. I'm literally downtown, about five, 10 minutes from the airport. Let's definitely have lunch. And you know Connor Boyack, too. Oh, I, was I know going
0: you. You to you knew him. Oh, no, yeah. I know,
1: I know Connor really well. Yeah. And he's been on the podcast a number of times, but he about ready to get to hit the Utah legislative session so it's his yeah, incredibly hard guy. time of year
0: i just sent him a letter of recommendation for a new project he's seeking funding for that will provide kind of an online weekly curriculum for parents of children younger than what we deal with so it's greatly complementary to what we do and he's a great guy
1: oh incredible his drive is faced a lot of adversity especially with the uh, you know the cannabis bill and proposition do here that was going on the last few months. But anyway, yeah, I know the philosophy is growing and I know that there are others that gravitate toward this and, you know, we just got to keep plugging away. And now's a great opportunity because there's lots of people thinking about we're still surviving after 800,000 people that run the federal <laughs> government are not, are not working.
0: Yeah. Can you, you imagine know? that? <laughs> How do we get along without them? I like what Mark Twain once said about, I guess it was politicians. There was one that had just passed away that he especially didn't like. And he put it politely by saying, I didn't attend the funeral, but I sent a nice letter indicating that I approved of it. (laughs) (laughs) I'll look you up and I'll let you know when I come out your way next. Meantime, holler anytime if I can be of any help. And let us know when this goes online and we'll be happy to help promote it on the website and on uh, social media.
1: Beautiful. And I have all of your links, books. And so we'll make sure that all of those are in the show notes for you so we can get uh, more people engaged. But thank you again, Larry. I really appreciate it.
0: My pleasure. Thanks, Patrick. Really Thanks, appreciate
1: Larry. it. And see ya. Thank you for listening to The Wealth Standard Podcast. Be sure to visit the show's official website, thewealthstandard.com, for appropriate disclaimers and terms of service. Guest opinions are their own. If you require specific investing, financial, legal, tax, or any other specialized advice, please consult an appropriate professional. We welcome and appreciate reviews of the show. Head on over to iTunes or Stitcher to leave your review. And don't forget to subscribe to the show to get access to every new episode and exclusive interviews this season. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time.